What a Day is brought to you by Ulta Beauty. This AAPI Heritage Month, Ulta Beauty is celebrating the joy of belonging, belonging to a community composed of intricate connections, belonging to our past and our future, to the heritage and birthright that is beauty. Ulta Beauty shines a light on the AAPI community, passing the mic to brand founders and creators to tell their stories centered on heritage, joy, and beauty. They carry AAPI-owned and founded brands like Live Tinted, Peach and Lily, Glamnetic, Tree Hut, and more. Shop AAPI-owned and founded brands at Ulta Beauty Stores and Ulta.com. It's Monday, September 13th. I'm Gideon Resnick. And I'm Josie Duffy-Rice, and this is What A Day, the podcast that some of you may not know is actually widely credited with reuniting Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. Yeah, as legend has it, they reconnected somewhere on our show's review page. It's true. Honestly, it's true. that's one of probably a thousand relationships that have started there. On today's show, Senator Joe Manchin clashes with his Democratic colleagues once again over the $3.5 trillion spending package. Plus, we recap the outcome from the U.S. Open. Yeah, interesting stuff there. But first, we are going to dive into the history of 9-11 and the war on terror. This past weekend marked the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And beyond the typical yearly commemoration, the FBI released a newly declassified document detailing contacts that two hijackers had with Saudi associates in the U.S. It reportedly did not have any more conclusive evidence about the Saudi government's role, though. This was the first document released after President Biden ordered a declassification of such materials that have been clandestine for years. And it comes after many families of victims have pushed for further investigation into possible involvement of the Saudi government in the attacks. Yep. And meanwhile, there are more developments in the decades-long war in Afghanistan that followed 9-11. For one thing, a New York Times investigation found new details about a U.S. drone strike in late August that killed civilians in Kabul. The version of events presented by American officials reportedly is way different than the reporting bears out. Namely, whether a bomb was even in the vehicle targeted by the drone, as the military first claimed, and whether there was any connection to ISIS at all. The driver of the vehicle, according to the Times, was a longtime employee for a U.S. aid group who appeared to have been actually driving colleagues to and from work. We'll link to the story in our show notes. Yeah, and given the withdrawal in Afghanistan and the impending anniversary of 9-11, I spoke with Spencer Ackerman. Ackerman is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who has worked at Wired, The Guardian, and The Daily Beast, where I had the pleasure of sometimes hearing his conversations with sources he had that same pleasure. We both speak quite loudly at times <laughs> and also witnessing the conviction of his work firsthand. He is also the author of the new book, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. And you can read more of his indispensable work at the Substack Forever Wars. I connected with Ackerman late last week, and I started by asking what he remembers about 9-11 the day itself. So I'm a native Brooklynite. And through a series of strange decisions, ended up going to college at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I was a senior in college and I woke up and I went downstairs in the group house I was living in and saw my roommates in front of the TV sobbing. All I could think of throughout that day was my parents are going to die. My cousin is going to die. My friends are going to die. 
it, it wasn't until Friday that I was able to get back home and I wanted to do something like at ground zero. Like I, I had no fuck. I had no idea what I was supposed. I just, I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing. I just felt like I had to do something. I felt just such tremendous guilt right. about not being there. Yeah. And there was a volunteer collection point or would be volunteer collection point near Penn station. I walked over there and it was a mob scene and there was something else that was there in that line, like hearing people who didn't sound like New Yorkers. Quickly, it became clear that like people had driven hundreds of miles, like from the South, from New England and from the Midwest, because like they watched 9-11 happen. Right. They saw the suffering and they wanted to help. There was a spirit of real solidarity shown to New Yorkers at one of our single darkest hours. And that feeling was manipulated, interpreted in such a way, legitimized and justified so as to filter it into a kind of bloodlust. Um, I live and have grown up at like the place where I'm from and the place where I live now is very close to this very tiny corner of Brooklyn called Little Pakistan. And Little Pakistan was decimated after 9-11. You'll, you'll also notice that there were no Pakistanis among the 9-11 hijackers. And mm -hmm. the fact that that didn't matter was the point. That now the mm -hmm. theory in operation was that there is going to be another attack and that people inside New York Muslim communities must know about it. And so they became the prey of 9-11. They became the prey of the national unity. And to sort of take it to something more recent, what have you been thinking about most when it comes to the withdrawal from Afghanistan? So the coverage of the withdrawal from Afghanistan underscored the reasons why this has been a forever war. Mm -hmm. um, the prevailing narrative, basically, there was a ton to criticize the Biden administration for. Mm. And yet the dominant criticisms were for all of the things that, you know, Biden did right. Biden does, in fact, get out. And through a whole lot of criticism sticks with that decision, and rightfully so, because the criticism misunderstood fundamentally what it was seeing and reporting before its face, mm -hmm. which is that the human disaster that really was on display was not the result of abandoning the war. It was the result of the war. Mm -hmm. The way the Afghanistan war proceeded after the 2001 decision by the Bush administration not to accept a conditional Taliban surrender that would have gotten them precisely the terms that Trump deals for in 2019 right. um, and signs in 2020. All of that strengthened the Taliban in the interim. Um, the thing also is, is that Biden launches this enormous effort 
uh, to get people out of Afghanistan, but it's a revealing one because first it throttles the access of the airport mm-hmm. away from Afghans and toward Americans, Westerners, foreigners. And then the Afghans that it does get out are people who served uh, the United States, its allies and Western interests. Um, and then accordingly, there is nothing done in terms of like, you know, TPS access or, or admission or how, however, in fact, it works. Um, by the estimates of the Costs of War Project at Brown University, at least, it's a very conservative estimate, at least 160,000 Afghans. That's surely an undercount. The refugee migration, so forth. America creates refugees and doesn't take responsibility for refugees because it doesn't want to admit refugees. And we saw a refugee backlash that really like brought back out the MAGA view of the war on terror, which I, in the book I call the war on terror's most authentic self, right. where the wars themselves are the expendable things. The native is empowering that war is the thing that must remain and the brutality in both respectable and vulgar forms um, of expressing that that comes along with it. And and you drew that link to, um, you know, the MAGA movement, as it were, and you're also writing in the Times op-ed that I was reading, um, linking the 9-11 attacks to the insurrection of January 6th. Can you unpack that more and how you were drawing the conclusions along those timelines? The war on terror, despite the euphemism of its name um, and its like pretenses to being like agnostic as to whose terrorism is the issue, entirely exempts white terrorism. Um, I open the book in uh, a white terror training camp um, that's explicitly a religious sanctified city in uh, northeastern Oklahoma. With that, you know, comes the safe haven that Americans like very casually talk about um, being the thing that they must go into Afghanistan to deprive terrorists of. Right. Um, So there is this like very real blindness um, to increasingly emboldened militia activity, um, particularly heavily armed stuff. And you start like seeing a whole lot of military cosplay at protests. And this really intensifies um, around the mid 2010s um, under now what's increasingly a joined critique um, by this proto-MAGA coalition, police forces themselves and politicians, which is that like Black Lives Matter, um, winking and nodding, you know, are acting like terrorists or are a terrorist group themselves or are causing terror on our streets. It's, it's a real five alarm fire um, where you can increasingly in a normalized way use the expanded investigative, investigative um, intelligence, prosecutorial, um, financial, um, and ultimately violent tools of the state against people who are very far away from actual acts of violence. But what the war on terror really should have taught everyone by now is that these tools will just always be more 
um, relentlessly, vigorously applied and excused to people of color, particularly black people, particularly indigenous people, um, and to their perceived allies um, against uh, left-wing politics far more um, than is conceivable to be against right-wing politics. That's the reality of the war on terror. And uh, to that point, I'm, I'm curious like what you think the, the next 20 years actually look like in the so-called war on terror. How is it even conceivably possible to break this cycle of expanding the surveillance state, you know, having a political party sort of dictate what direction that goes into and, and against whom? There's only one answer, and it's to organize. Elite politics has shown us for 20 years that it will never abolish the war on terror. Kerry Howley, in her excellent recent New York uh, magazine piece about the whistleblower Daniel Hale, who should be freed this instant, um, had this wonderful line about how, like, before you realized it, the war on terror was just American foreign policy. Only through grassroots pressure and organizing um, can politicians um, be forced into a binary choice between preserving the war on terror and preserving their political office or the chance of them holding it. That, I think, is the only thing that can determine that there can be a future without a war on terror. And we deserve that future and we can achieve it. That was my conversation with Spencer Ackerman from late last week. He is the author of the new book, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. You should pick it up ASAP. Absolutely. We'll have a link to where you can get it. That's not Amazon. And more of Spencer's work from his Substack Forever Wars in our show notes. But that's the latest for now. It is Monday, Wad Squad, and for today's Temp Check, we are talking about sports that have a completely unique understanding of the word love, different than you would find in Apple Podcast reviews, for instance. So, Tennis's U.S. Open was this weekend, featuring major upsets in both the men's and women's contests. On the men's side, Russia's Daniil Medvedev beat out Novak Djokovic of Serbia in a match that could have made Djokovic the first male player to win all four Grand Slam tournaments in a year since 1969. The women's title was won by 18-year-old Emma Raducanu of Britain, who entered the tournament ranked 150th in the world. She had to play through the qualifying tournament just to reach the finals, winning every single one of her 10 matches along the way. So, Josie, there's an obvious question when a teenager wins a major athletic contest like this. Are you jealous? You know, Gideon, I still think I'm 18, but I'm almost twice her age. So when I remember that, I am jealous, but also uh, happy about my very bad memory. What about you? Yeah, I uh, I don't understand this world whatsoever. Like uh, the the I'm not even wildly far removed from this age, I guess. But it still feels like it never happened to me. You know, like it, it, that's how like it's so much in the rear view that like it doesn't make any sense. And also to the point of the conversation we were just having about like 9-11 and anniversaries and things like that. We are old enough that people who are major athletes at the top of their sport winning important tournaments in their lives were born after that happened. I mean, that I is know. crazy. It's unbelievable. Gideon also just trying to tell all of you guys that he's younger than me. Um, don't believe him. That <laughs> is fake news. That's complete fake news. I, 
I'm definitely, I would say that I'm definitely closer to double her age than not, if that makes sense. That, it does make sense. It does make okay. sense. You know, okay. my son is as far away from Emma's age as I am from Emma's age, which is pretty upsetting. But hopefully, yes. maybe one day he'll be a famous tennis star. It's not right. looking good, but um, we can cross our fingers. <laughs> there, there's there's a lot of time, which is the the reassuring element here. Yeah. Um, just like that, we have checked our temps. If you are young and a teen, congratulations on your athletic success. Uh, and we'll be back <laughs> after some ads. What a day is brought to you by Books. This Mother's Day, give mom her flowers. She absolutely deserves the best. And that's why you should send her farm fresh flowers from Books. That's short for bouquets. Books has modern designs and unique flowers you can't find anywhere else. And with 20% off, you can send some to mom, your wife, your auntie, even your granny, okay? Anyone who deserves flowers in your life mm-hmm. doesn't have to be holiday specific. You get flowers, you're getting flowers, <laughs> everyone's getting flowers. <laughs> Go to books.com and use promo code WAD for 25% off. That is B-O-U-Q-S dot com, promo code WAD, Books promo code WAD. What a Day is brought to you by Fast Growing Trees. Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers. They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Plus, Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. We love fast-growing trees here. I keep telling you that the many plants that I've gotten from these folks are yet hanging on. Um, And that's not because I have a green thumb, okay? This spring, fast-growing trees, they have the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code WAD at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code WAD at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code WAD. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Therapy is great for, you know, you know that thing that just is like sitting on your shoulder, you can't get over it, and you just sometimes need somebody to talk through it with? Therapy can be helpful for that, you all, okay? You got to get it off your chest, you know? And you can do that with BetterHelp. So visit BetterHelp.com slash WAD today to get 10% off your first month. That's 10% off your first month at BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash WAD. Let's wrap up with some headlines. Headlines. Iran reached an agreement with the UN's nuclear watchdog over the weekend, allowing inspectors to install new monitoring equipment inside the country's nuclear facilities. Many see this as a step in the right direction after the last couple of years of tension between Iran and the International Atomic Energy Agency. 
a lot of those tensions came about under the Trump administration after Trump's decision to withdraw from the 2015 nuclear deal, granting the U.S. the ability to impose sanctions on Iran. The latest agreement reaffirms an ongoing inspection program to monitor nuclear production in the country, which could eventually lead to the U.S. lifting its sanctions. People who are not fully vaccinated are 10 times more likely to be hospitalized and 11 times more likely to die of COVID-19 than those who are fully vaccinated, according to a CDC report published last Friday. A second CDC study highlighted that the Moderna vaccine is more effective in preventing hospitalizations than the Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson shots. Shout out to the Moderna hive. However, all three vaccines approved in the U.S. collectively were 86 percent effective in preventing hospitalizations and are extremely effective in protecting against severe illness and death. Last week, President Biden announced he would require federal workers to be vaccinated against COVID-19 and mandate that large employers either require their workers to be vaccinated or get regularly tested. Meanwhile, with nearly 30,000 kids hospitalized in August, the highest levels reported to date terrifying, the FDA is still working to get more data before approving a vaccine to be given to kids younger than 12 years old. Yeah, that definitely feels like it will be the turning point in this. Yeah, absolutely. Democratic leaders hope to hold a vote on President Biden's economic agenda later this month, but lawmakers still cannot agree on a price tag for the multi-trillion dollar spending plan. Democrats feel a sense of urgency to pass this bill in the coming months because strategists think they'll likely lose the House and possibly the Senate in 2022. And who do they listen to but strategists, which would close their window for passing this kind of package. Do or die moments like these are a summoning spell for the Republican demon that controls Joe Manchin. Manchin is threatening to vote against the $3.5 trillion proposal, which includes programs to address child poverty and climate change due to, well, its cost. Manchin's colleague, Senator Bernie Sanders, said any smaller economic package would be, quote, unacceptable. The debate played out during Sunday news programs yesterday, where Sanders said it's important that the reconciliation bill passes alongside the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Here he is on CNN's State of the Union. These two bills, the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill, are marching down the path together. Mr. Manchin, I know, worked very hard on the bipartisan bill. It would be a terrible thing for the American people if both of those bills failed. They are linked together. They're going to go forward together. Just like the people that meet in our Apple podcast reviews the last time I will do that callback, I promise. Uh, Although the reconciliation bill is still being fully formed, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi aims to have it fully written by September 15th and needs all Democrats to be united for the legislation to pass in both the House and the Senate. In a testament to the enduring legacy of Lady Gaga's 2017 Super Bowl halftime show, someone (laughs) jumped out of the sky at a football stadium this weekend. And that someone was a cat who was in attendance Mm. at a game between University of Miami and Appalachian State. Thankfully, the cat is safe after somehow ending up in the upper decks of the stadium and hanging from the ledge by one paw. It was crazy. It plummeted to the stands below, but was caught by fans who made a DIY safety net out of an American flag. Cat Rescue quickly overtook football as everyone in the stadium's favorite sport, with the crowd responding like this when the animal was revealed to be okay. Yes, it was extremely emotional. (laughs) Anyway, this is the story of yet another college athlete who should be paid for their hard work. We stand with you, Varsity Falling Cat. Yeah, you need to organize for your rights. You should not be falling for free, that's for sure. You should organize in the reviews of What a Day.
There's yet another callback. One more. You made promises. I did not. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly <laughs> true. There's a recording to prove it. And those are the headlines. That is all for today. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, exercise mentions, Stephen, and tell your friends to listen. And if you are into reading and not just stories of cats who fell, but were okay, like me, What a Day <laughs> is also a nightly newsletter. Check it out and subscribe at cricket.com slash subscribe. I'm Josie Duffy Rice. I'm Gideon Resnick. And, and be, be older, older athletes. athletes. Yeah, come on. We got to be on the same page somehow. Everybody in the world needs to work together to make me feel young and they are failing. What a Day is a production of Crooked Media. It's recorded and mixed by Charlotte Landis. Sonia Tun and Jazzy Marine are our associate producers. Our head writer is John Milstein, and our executive producers are Leo Duran and me. Our theme music is by Colin Gilliard and Kashaka. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. I'm Jessica Reeves, and I've been analyzing and reporting on extremism for the last 10 years, and I have the gray hair to prove it. Subscribe to our podcast, Extremely, for an always eye-opening look inside the daily work of exposing, fighting, and disrupting all facets of extremism. My co-host, Oren Siegel, and I explore this ever-changing landscape and bring you stories of people and places impacted by extremism, those who fight to protect our communities, and those who offer new perspectives. You can find Extremely wherever you listen to podcasts.